All right. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Behind the Movement podcast. This is Kyle. And before we get to my conversation with Yuri Marmerstein, I just wanted to update all of you. Um, for those of you who have been following along for a while, maybe you noticed last week that I announced that we started our Movement Brooklyn online platform, uh, a place for content and a place for community. And we've done our first two live classes, and they've been wonderful and exciting and a, a real pleasure to, uh, to teach. Um, and going forward, we're, we're keeping that alive. Um, I also do office hours there where I have conversations and, and help support people's practices in any way that I can, um, and also do my best to give some direction for, for resources that um, might be able to give people the answers that I may not have personally. Um, but it's also a, a place where we're, we're exploring different themes and ideas and concepts. And for each month, we're, we're having different focuses. And for the month of December, we're focusing on resilience. And for many of you who have listened to a lot of episodes on the podcast, it's a, probably a, a familiar word at this point. I think it's a direction that we go in a lot of our conversations as we start talking about this idea of resilience. And I think it's this, this meta skill, right? It's this skill that, that transcends and we, we need it in a lot of different places and we can work on it in one place and it can benefit, benefit us in another place. Um, so, we're focusing on that for the month of December in a lot of different ways and, and kind of attacking it from different angles. So that's where we're at for December. And in January, we'll be uh, digging into a different focus. Um, but like I said, it's a place for community. We have this live feed there where people can share their ideas and the things that they're thinking about and questions. And it's not just uh, it's not just a one-way conversation. Everybody's participating and wondering and exploring together. So it's a really cool thing to be a part of and, and starting and, and getting going. So maybe uh, we'll see you there soon. Uh, if it's something you're interested in, you can go to movementbrooklyn.com or you can go to members.movementbrooklyn.com and, uh, and jump into the conversation and the practice. I really enjoyed this conversation with Yuri Marmerstein. Uh, it was the first time that we've, we've chatted, uh, the first time we met over Zoom here. And uh, I really can't uh, say enough good things about um, about the conversation. He's really thoughtful about teaching, about practice. He enjoys being a beginner. He he enjoys the process, and uh, I I enjoyed getting to to hear about that and and his approach and his story and and kind of where he's going next. So um, yeah, I hope you enjoy it as well. Here it is, Yuri Marmerstein. Yuri, can you hear me? Yep. How so, are you? Not too bad. Awesome. One moment. Just so you know, we're already uh, recording here. Okay, cool. No worries. Yeah. Awesome. Oh, I see you got a, a good little microphone there as well. I try. I'm also in the closet, so I, you can't see it on the other side, but it's actually got a lot of um, sound treatment, so there's uh -huh. no echo. Or minimal no, I, echo anyway. I and hear that it's very nice sound quality. Fairly minimal background noise, depending on what the the heater in my roommate want to do, <laughs> or the landscapers. Yeah. Um, is it? Do you have this set up because you're doing a lot of online teaching? Um, 
Um, I've, I've been getting into more uh, voiceover stuff. I've been studying that. So this is kind of like the, the setup so I can have a, a home voiceover studio. Um, it helps the online teaching. It helps also just to have, I don't know, there's, there's a lot of background noise everywhere. Mm-hmm. And it's really hard to get away from that. And it like in a house, the closet is the closest place. If you have a walk-in closet, separate from building a studio. So it's nice to have, because I know that in here, even if my roommate makes a lot of noise, like I, I still, I, I have to deal with it less. Even if the landscapers, they're not coming on Monday, but Thursday, Friday are landscaper days. Even in the closet, you can't get away from it. But at least if I had to, like I couldn't do something in the living room when the landscapers were out because they got the Ghostbuster pack of leaf blowers. It's full on. I totally, I totally understand. When yeah. I, we were living at my uh, wife's folks' house for like six months at the beginning of the pandemic, and there were landscapers there as well. And it was, I think it was every Wednesday or every Thursday. And it was like a nightmare. It's like you couldn't hide from it anywhere, even in the basement. Yeah. And it's like, I think, I don't know, somehow they know there's some kind of black magic going on. They know when I'm trying to film stuff. They know when I'm trying to record videos. And that's when they come. It's like, <laughs> they, I don't know. It's like some kind of sense they have. Somehow yeah. they know when I'm trying to record videos. So how's how's the voiceover work going? It's getting there. It's a, it's a long process. I recorded demos because it's one of those businesses where and I don't know what I'm doing. I'm just exploring it because I thought, well, I can't travel. So I'm going to spend time learning shit. Mm-hmm. And then maybe if I can't travel for a real long time, maybe I can still do something in the house. Mm-hmm. That's a little bit different. And then the problem, it's not a problem, but with my current business is like, I have to do everything. So I'm the, I'm, I'm the leader on every part of the project. And right. that gets a little bit overbearing sometimes. So it's nice. I want to have projects where I'm only responsible for one part and then I do that part and then it's somebody else's responsibility. I like that idea because mm-hmm. I don't want to have to do everything. Um, so it, it's going. I recorded my demos a couple of weeks ago, not here at a studio, like a proper studio with a with a $4,000 mic. This is like a $500 mic. So there's <laughs> there's levels. Mm-hmm. There's levels of that. Um, so I'm waiting to get those demos back. And then after that, it's just like, I guess the next stage of the process is basically just um, auditioning on different sites and then, you know, kind of like casting nets into different ponds and then seeing if any fish travels. I don't know. I'm still new to it. I just think it's interesting. Um, I, I grew, I still watch a lot of cartoons. Mm-hmm. But I also grew up watching a lot of cartoons. Mm-hmm. So getting deeper into that world, you appreciate the nuance between um just just behind all of that behind what goes into the voice mm-hmm. did um so is your dream then would be to like be doing like a something for like cartoons as opposed to like commercials or something i don't know See, i don't know yet i think it's more interesting when mm-hmm. i'm not doing my own voice mm-hmm. when i'm being a character but mm-hmm. from what i understand commercials pay really well mm-hmm. and um and animation is like hit or miss it's a different kind of game so Ultimately, I mean, you want both. You want something that's ful- that fulfills you as an artist or whatever you are. But mm-hmm. at the same time, you know, it's nice to, to be able to pay bills. I'm open to all of it because I think it's all interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, the, the character stuff, because I did an animation demo as well. So the character stuff is more interesting to me. But, you know, to uh, take what I can get if I'm fishing, mm-hmm. I want to eat a dinner. I want to oh, get some fish well, and instead I, I, of waiting I, for the perfect fish. I know you don't want to be like leading everything, but after like perusing your Instagram and then 
knowing that you're into voiceover, I'm, I'm tempted to tell you, and now I'm just going to say it, that you should maybe just do your own cartoon, which I think would be fantastic. Well, then I, I, I need an animator because I yeah. definitely, that's the skill set I don't have. It takes me long enough to edit videos and I haven't even, and yeah. I'm about to try to learn uh, DaVinci Resolve because I've been using Sony Vegas for editing, or it's mm -hmm. not Sony, it hasn't been Sony for years. And it's a little bit annoying because you like you pay to buy the program and then they keep pestering you about new ones. Mm -hmm. And it's like, I paid money to use the program so you wouldn't bother me. Right. <laughs> that was the whole point. It's like once but they I, get I, you in, they want you to keep buying more. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But I heard DaVinci Resolve is really good. So that's like when I have more time, I want to start using that to edit. But that's not, yeah, I don't know how to do animation. And I, I don't I don't think I want to. I'd have to have a, an yeah. animator. Yeah, it's well, a listen, I, I think if you put it out there and it's like, oh, I'm thinking about trying to like make a cartoon, the Yuri cartoon. And then you could do a bunch of the voices for not just yourself, but do like a number of the characters or maybe even all of them. I think that there could be something there. I think it could be very fun. Yeah. From what yeah. I understand, that's what they do anyway. Like when they hire someone for an animation to do a cartoon, they usually they have like one main character and then they usually they have them do either like background or voice some random character mm -hmm. just because they have like a minimum of how long they get them in the studio, stuff like that. Oh, very cool. Well, I, I, I dig that. So this is like a project that you've picked up like amid the pandemic was like, oh, well, I'll, I'll, I'll since I'm not going to be at home so much, like I'm going to explore this. I went through some a bit of soul searching this year, um, not only from, I don't want to say losing my business, but the way that I've been running it for the last seven years mm -hmm. is kind of up in the air right now. It's very unpredictable because I've been traveling and teaching seminars. So there was that and, and I was dealing with some injuries as well in the, in the case that like, so you, you think, you think deep in the soul, what if worst case scenario because of the injuries and the pandemic that I can't do what I've been doing, that all of a sudden it puts a stop to it. So it's like, um, I, I like this quote. It's from a series of books. It, yeah, whatever. You don't tie your boats together in a storm. So mm -hmm. shit like that. So this idea, okay, I have time. I'm home longer than I've ever been. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not making a lot of money now, but I got some stuff saved up. So why don't I invest into learning some new skill sets that I'm interested in that I've wanted to do for a while, but because I've been traveling, I haven't really had the chance, like just mm -hmm. to take regular classes in something. Voiceover is one of them. I've been doing film acting as well for the last few months. Again, mm -hmm. just, just something that I was interested in that I wanted to do that I didn't have that much opportunity to do because I was traveling so much. So it, it's, you know, it's always a blessing and a curse on the one hand, I lost my ability to do business in the way that I've been doing it. Mm -hmm. And and I've definitely taken a financial hit because of that. I think I had to cancel like, I don't know, 12 or 15 workshops this year or some shit that I had. Oh planned. my gosh. I don't know. And it would have been more because that was only like, you know, through June, mm -hmm. through June, July that I had to cancel. Obviously it would have been more for, for the fall. It would have made more trips. So luckily because shit started hitting, I didn't have to give out that many refunds. Like there weren't that many people signed up because there was still time. That would have been a bigger hit if I had, you know, like a lot of people signing up and I had to refund all those people. Mm -hmm. um, so, so yeah, it was, it's like, okay, so I'm home. My business took a hit. I can do some online stuff. It's not as rewarding. It's not as fulfilling. It's good to be able to connect with people online, but mm -hmm. there's definitely 
there's that like layer of energy community or whatever you want to call it. There's a layer of energy missing when it has to go through an electrical signal instead of in person. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's good to be able to connect and still do that. But yeah, I thought, well, shit, I'm home. I could, I could wallow in my pity or I could use that <laughs> to try mm-hmm. to learn some new skill sets and maybe who knows, maybe I have to completely change my career. I, admi- I really admire that approach because, and you know this, um, but there are plenty of people who like when this whole thing happened, kind of just decided to just hit pause. And it's like, well, I'm just going to wait till things go back to normal or when things go back, they keep saying go back. And they're like, I'm just going to like watch Netflix, watch Hulu and just hit pause. And then we'll return back to like normal operating procedure. And I'm of the belief that there's not going to be something, it's not going to be the same as it was. And I also think that like, it's good to like develop options and have lots of different routes that we can potentially go. There's nothing wrong with taking a break. Mm -hmm. Like for, for a little bit, it was good. Right. During that like big lockdown, like, okay, people Mm -hmm. now chill for a little bit. It's good to have that break. Mm -hmm. Then at a certain point, it's like, okay, break time's (laughs) over. Get back to doing shit. Right. Back to work. Like time is time is your most valuable asset. It's not money. It's right. your time. And it's even if it, even if you're not making money, as you said, it's like, it's about time. So it's like, oh, well, maybe I'm not going to make money doing this thing, but at least I'm like, cr- you know, developing something, exploring something, researching something, playing with something. Yeah. And it's like, even if you don't become uh, a, a film actor or a, a voiceover actor, those tools are tools that don't suddenly vanish when you stop doing that stuff, that Absolutely. those tools transcend into whatever it is you do. So all of a sudden you're back you know, doing your workshops, we'll say like next year, those are new tools for when you're doing your workshops, you know, oh, no, all, and it, it even all goes from together. there. Yeah. I've learned. And, and like, I can't watch movies the same way now as well. Cause the, the guy I took acting classes from, he's a, an editor and a writer and a director as well. So he's giving all these different perspectives. So mm-hmm. I can't even watch a movie the same way. Cause I'm thinking about cinematography and angles and how they film this. And if they had to ADR this, or mm-hmm. if they had to like, what kind of, and it's interesting to think about, but yeah. And, it, and then it it corresponds even when I'm filming my own videos. I don't have much cinematography because my camera is on a tripod, uh-huh. but it, it still makes me think about more stuff. And yeah. same thing with the voiceover. You start to pick out these little nuances of listening to people talk. And it's like, there's a lot. Audio is really interesting for like the, the way we pick up information. From mm. what I understand, I can't confirm this because it was some article I read. But we actually process information the fastest when we hear it mm. like visually. There's right. We have to process it. So we get this light that enters our eyes. Then we have to to turn that into an electrical signal. Then it goes through the brain. Then it corresponds to every experience we've ever had and what that means. And then it's okay. This means this. Mm -hmm. And from what I understand, when we hear something that happens like an order of magnitude faster or something like that compared Mm -hmm. to when we see. So it's an interesting thought how much detail there is in sound and how Mm -hmm. much more. I, I think it's like developing hearing is really underappreciated because we can we can't see what's behind us but we can hear what's behind us that's so interesting i've thought about this because i've read some books about like like indigenous cultures that are like much more oral cultures you know it's oftentimes it was like they weren't writing out the stories like they were sharing the stories orally and it, it it changes your way of even seeing the world when 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 it's a much more oral culture as opposed to a visual culture or whatever yeah, there's a yeah, there's a lot of depth. There's a lot of depth in audio. Mm-hmm. I think. I mean, I, I've always had pretty sensitive hearing, but now it's like 
now I'm picking out more detail and it, it's still, it's, it's just like a new world that's open and I still barely touched it. Yeah. But so tell me about, I'm curious, um, just because this is our first time meeting, I should make sure I say that for people who are listening, this is our first time meeting. So I'm getting to know you. Um, tell me, cause I talked to a couple people who have kind of had a similar schedule. It sounds like to being on the road a lot and give me an idea like pre pandemic, how, like how many days out of the year, how many days out of the month were you traveling to teach workshops? Um, and then also I'm curious about like the, the injuries that you've been dealing with. Um, so maybe it was uh, how much it's hard to say maybe a third of the year, maybe more. Mm -hmm. Um, it, it was rare that I would spend more than one or two months at home at a time. Um, I started trying to, to do less like really long tours. Cause that's pretty rough. It's, it's pretty rough on the, on the psyche. It's rough on the body. You're moving all the time. You can't really train. You have to like show up and project the energy, but sometimes it's not there and you got to pull it out of your ass. Mm -hmm. Like I, I had a few seminars that I don't even know. I got like one, one trip. I got real sick and it was like, whatever I got to pull, I got to teach for two days straight. So I got to pull this energy from somewhere and I pulled it out. But then after it was like, felt like that. So it, it can be rough. It can be really rewarding as well. It's amazing to see the world, just that balance. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and definitely like traveling. It's a good experience traveling the world alone, but it can be very tiresome as well. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, the, at the same time, like I said, one of the negatives is I, I don't get to be a student as much. Mm -hmm. it, it's nice to, it was nice these last few months to spend some time at home and then, okay, I could take regular classes because mm -hmm. it, it's, I think as a teacher, it's really important to be a student as well. If you spend too much time on one side mm -hmm. of the, of the teaching class, you built a, you build a little bit of resistance. You build a, a little bit of, um, what's the word? Like you can't communicate it as well because you get used to being the voice of authority and a little bit of, and a little bit of like rigidity, right? Yeah. And mm -hmm. a little bit of arrogance even because it, yeah. it like, I, I try, I think this is one of the big fallacies. A lot of teacher makes is especially when they teach the same thing for too long is this assumption that the students know that the thing about this thing, mm -hmm. maybe they do, but probably that doesn't happen unless your students have been with you for a long time and they kind of speak your language. And it's like assuming that the students know something is a huge, huge fallacy of a teacher. So it's really important to be a student and to be in the, in this situation where I don't know anything. So, mm -hmm. and then you watch that the, the teacher assume that, you know, something, I don't know. So I don't know where I was going with that. Be a student. Yeah. So mm -hmm. being a student with the injuries. So it, it, it's been an interesting, it's been an interesting route. Uh, I fucked up my left hand a lot, but what ends up happening is even like way before I started uh, doing handstands, I played piano a lot as a kid and mm -hmm. I developed uh, focal dystonia, which is actually a neurological condition. It's mm -hmm. not physical, but it manifests in the physical by either uh, tremoring or closing the hand involuntarily. So it causes mm -hmm. involuntary muscle contractions during either specific moments or sometimes general moments. Mm -hmm. And it's something that I've been able to deal with and, and kind of work around mm -hmm. in the stuff that I've done. Luckily, probably I should have spent more time in, I should have taken the rehab as seriously then as right. I did this year. And mm -hmm. maybe I could have overcome it a little bit better, but for whatever reason, like starting at the end of last year, um, I don't know. It just progressed a lot further. It, it started giving me, and I've hurt this wrist a few times as well. 
like mm-hmm. like sprained or whatever kind. I don't know. I didn't go to the doctor, but I damaged it mm-hmm. a few times. So that probably didn't help. So what I started, what started happening to me toward about a year ago now, was um, I would wake up with some of the fingers numb, and the hand would be like in a claw. So I would have to pry it open. Wow. So this, this idea that like typically, if I'm aware of it. Or during certain movements, it doesn't like to be extended. It wants to close and it wants to do this, but mm-hmm. I can control it to a certain degree. It's, it's really messed up because the more aware of it I am, the worse it gets. Mm-hmm. So the rehab is really complicated because it's not just about physical. It's about brain repatterning. Yeah, I'm super interested in that. I, I, read, a, I read a book not too long yeah. ago about like neuroplasticity. Yeah. I'm curious like what that rehab looks like, what they it's were having really to do. It's a really difficult thing to do because the, the more you let it do what it already wants, wants to do mm-hmm. you're slowing down the rehab so it's it's like this idea of constant vigilance mm-hmm. and constant awareness the rehab is fairly simple there's coordination exercises that you do as best you can mm-hmm. um, i try to do a lot of things non-dominant side even mm-hmm. simple shit you know like eating writing things like that because that helps with the coordination mm-hmm. and it's like you try as best as you can to not allow it to do what it wants to do Right, to like break the habits, like because it, it, yeah. is it is it kind of developed from like oh like oh like like over enforced ha- habits? Is that what it is? That's what it comes into. It's it's a really interesting thing, Dystonia. The Western solution is just to inject Botox to weaken the muscles, of course, just, of course, or to just sever some of the like the the nerves. So uh-huh. it's, it's really fucked up what the treatments are. Yeah, um, but it's. It develops you either from sometimes emotional trauma, sometimes from overuse. Like it, mm-hmm. it's fairly common among musicians because mm-hmm. they do these high repetitions of um, of these very subtle movements. Mm-hmm. So, and I don't even know if it came from playing piano. I just know that I played piano for a while as a kid. So that could have been one of the sources of it. But yeah, I hit a point this year where it really like I was almost afraid to not afraid, but Normally when I slept, the hand would relax or when I wasn't aware of it, it would relax and I I more or less could control it. And that's, I hit the point this year where my fingers would go numb. And when I was no longer conscious, I felt it like grip hard. Mm -hmm. So even like taking a nap, I could feel that as I fell asleep, the hand would start to contract. And I was like, shit. And then, so this flexibility which I can do again, thankfully. So th- right, you're, right now you're like you're like extending it like the first knuckle. Yeah, so it's mm-hmm. ninety degrees uh, fingers to to palm, which I've always had. I've never had an issue with it. This hand was tensing up so much that I couldn't. I could barely put it on the floor because these fingers didn't bend back at all. So this flexibility that I've always had, I had nothing. Because that that tendon, especially in the middle finger, was so inflamed because it was just gripping all the time, mm-hmm. and it, it's it wasn't just gripping when I was conscious; it was gripping when I was unconscious. So it was like I know I have to sleep, but I know my hand is gonna be fucked up in the morning because it's gonna be making a fist the whole night. Yeah, so pretty messed up. So it it took yeah, like the the rehab itself is not super complex. It's coordination exercises. Mm-hmm. right? Doing them a lot. Relaxation exercises. Like one mm-hmm. of the things I watched probably every YouTube video there ever was mm-hmm. made on focal dystonia. And I think I should make my own because there's not a lot of um, information on it. I did an online program as well with a, a guy who's known for 
for a, a doctor who's known for working with dystonia patients. Mm-hmm. And he's he has some interesting philosophies as well. But one thing I picked up that was really interesting from a guitarist who developed it was this idea of hanging. It's mm-hmm. like you can't, the hand's not going to relax if you have it on its own, but if you use the weight of the arm to hang it on something, mm-hmm. so a lot of relaxation exercises, a lot mm-hmm. of other things that helps was like literally sitting, like mm-hmm. laying on the hand. So even if it wanted to, because I, I I tried doing like finger splints as well. So mm-hmm. maybe I could keep the fingers straight at night. And, uh, and that didn't work because it would just, <laughs> it would just bend the splint. So that the hanging would also help us just laying on the arm, like mm-hmm. laying on the hands. So you have my whole body weight pushing it down. So it can't contract and just spending time there and, and trying to, to get into a relaxed mental state where I was aware of the hand. Mm-hmm. And I, I was aware that it was relaxed because that was one of the issues that I had over the years is like I would I would have moments. It's a lot better now. I'm really glad. Like I said, I wish I would have taken the rehab as seriously before mm-hmm. I had a major issue with it. Yeah. But but I remember I would have these moments where I was like, oh shit, my hand is relaxed. And then instantly it tensed up because, right, because the I moment the moment you the moment you brought attention to yeah. it. Because oh, I was aware so that interesting. It wow. So is that is that the 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 main injury then that you've been dealing with, or is there something else as well? Um, that was the main one. That was mm-hmm. the main thing that really kind of um set me back because I couldn't, I'm known for teaching handstands and I couldn't even put my hands on the floor. I couldn't hang from a bar wow. for a couple months. Wow. Like well, I'm at the point now. It's almost back to where it was and better actually in some ways in terms of coordination, like I can hang from a bar on one arm, mm-hmm. which is huge because I haven't been able to do that for a year. Mm-hmm. Um, I did some other things recently. I forgot what they were, but it was like a big, oh yeah, I, I did. Um, I haven't been training handstands at all this year, pretty much other than like basic demonstrations and teaching, but I did actually some one arm handstand shifts on my left side a couple of weeks ago. And that was huge because literally I haven't been able to even come close to doing that in about a year mm-hmm. because I, I couldn't bend this finger back. I couldn't put weight on it because the wow. fingers were so, so that was, and it, it's, again, it's, it's, it's fucked up to some degree. Cause uh, you know, maybe the haters on the internet are going to call me out, but like I'm going through my own shit. And no, sure it's, I, think, hit, I think, I think it's really admirable. You know what and I mean? And I've I developed think... myself as a teacher more going through that. Mm-hmm. That's like the, the thing is, is that I'm worse at the skill, but I have a better perspective on what the skill is. I also think it's important to hear that, you know, everything we see on Instagram isn't perfect and that they're, that people aren't bulletproof, you know what I mean? And the people that were, people are looking to for suggestions or answers or feedback are also dealing with their own things. But I think it's important to hear like the, the humility and being like, yeah, I've got a thing and I'm dealing with it. And I, I, I've worked through it and been as disciplined with this as with a one-arm handstand. Absolutely. You know, and I think that that's pretty admirable. And, and and I don't think enough people speak up about that stuff because I think people are almost like, well, I want people to think I'm like superhuman, you know? So yeah, I really have a, a, a lot of uh, admiration for like the openness about that because I no, think a lot sure. of people can keep that stuff quiet. It's a lot. I mean, yeah, that, that's, especially on the internet, you want to project like, oh, I'm this image of perfection and you should try to be like me. And that's a lot of the questions I get too. And like, don't be like me, be like yourself. You can yeah. learn from my journey, mm-hmm. but but you're not going to be me and you shouldn't want to be me. Yeah. Because I don't know. There's good and bad things. I'm not perfect. I'm dealing with my own shit. You're, you're based in Las Vegas. Correct. 
um, I've been there quite a bit. I grew up in Lake Tahoe. So we used to travel down a lot to Vegas for, for events and things like, especially when I was in high school and stuff. Um, what brought you out there? Is that where you grew up? No, I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio. Okay. Um, I wanted to get out of Ohio. Mm-hmm. Um, and my first thought was actually moving to LA to try to do stunts. Mm-hmm. Um, and I visited and it was cool, but it's such a big city. so expensive to live there. Um, I don't have the right attitude. There's like a certain attitude of LA people that I don't think I ever could have developed. Um, so I ended up moving to Vegas instead to, mm-hmm. I guess, kind of pursue circus instead of stunts. Um, Vegas, I, I like the city a lot better. I like the community better. I thought it was uh, more open. The mm-hmm. city was a lot cheaper to live in and easier to get around in. So that's huge because L.A. traffic, I don't know if I could have kept my sanity, barely kept <laughs> my sanity like visiting for a couple of days, much less living there and dealing with that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and now I don't even know Gavin Newsom's playing the Hunger Games and shutting down yeah. all of the districts and yeah. <laughs> giving them fight for food, whatever the fuck he's doing. <laughs> but um, yeah, so move to Vegas instead. It's been good. Uh-huh. Am I going to stay here? I don't know. Mm-hmm. I'm going to eventually I'd love to just uh, get a compound in the middle of the woods, but I'm not there yet. You look like somebody who should have a compound in the middle of the woods. Yeah, yeah. Need, need to make more money first, need to kind of tie up a lot of loose ends, cement some things. So I don't know, it, it wouldn't be for a few more years. And be, other than that, I do like Vegas for a lot of reasons. The Did only you... thing I really don't like is the the lack of woods. Yeah, yeah, well, it's, it's, it's very desert. And, uh, yeah. and to get away from the city, you got to, you know, travel a bit. But the good news is, is like basically everything between Vegas and Reno is like totally remote. You know, people always yep. talk about Nevada and they only think of like Vegas or they think of like, you know, the little bit of late of Tahoe that's in Nevada. And I'm like, listen, there is a reason like they wanted to store all the nuclear waste in Nevada yep. because there is nothing in between. It's yeah. not forest, but there is nothing. It's not a bad state, though. There's no state tax. Um, I know the governor, there's no shutdowns right now. There's like a warning which, which might mean that they're trying to slow roll shutdowns so people don't freak out about it as much. Mm-hmm. Um, no, it's, it's not a bad state, Nevada. I don't regret. So did, so did you end up getting into some circus performing or any of like the, the shows on the strip or anything? I did. Probably not a, as much as my original intention. So I never got into the, the big ongoing shows like like, you know, Cirque du Soleil or Le Rêve, or, and a lot of those shows are closing down permanently now, which also sucks mm-hmm. um, for, for all the people involved in those shows. But um, I did a lot of uh, corporate work, so like performing at corporate events. Um, I did, did some random shows here and there, some different events. So I did do a lot of circus performing work. Um, it was more in the gig field. What does I that never... look like? What What is like a... What is like a, a performance at a corporate event look like? So typically um, you're going to have an act either by yourself or with a group. And it's like, I don't know, some big convention, some big meeting. And let's say, for example, they rent out either this convention center for for the meeting. So that's one example. I think this is the last gig I did before like all of the this year before all of the shutdown started happening. So it was some medical convention. 
-hmm. So we have an act that we do on a specific apparatus. So mm -hmm. they, they give us music, we rehearse the act, mm -hmm. um, and then we will do a tech run. So we'll show up to the venue to, to rig the equipment. We'll do some rehearsals just to, to make sure we know the space. If there, there were dancers involved for this one and a singer as well, so there's like a stage. So we're doing blocking for that. So the, we're doing like a rehearsal of what the show would be either the morning of or the night before, maybe a couple of days before, depending on when we have the space open. Um, that was a morning gig. So in that case, the day of, we showed up early, we warm up, we do um, a full run. And so this is like a big convention, right? So they have, you know, PowerPoint presentations. So it's a medical thing. So it's a bunch of doctors. They got tables. It's like one of those big conference rooms. Mm -hmm. And then this is like an entertainment that would happen in between. So then they're introducing, this is just one example, but introducing this new product, whatever mm -hmm. it is. Mm -hmm. Then you got dancers that come out. You got singers that come out. You got acrobats that... So we're aerialists, so we go up and spin on this thing in the air and then come down. So it's like it's a way to break up the monotony of some of the presentations and a way to, to introduce this product. So that morning would be, yeah, we would do a, a full rehearsal, mm -hmm. then a um, little bit of downtime, mm -hmm. and then we do the performance. Hopefully it goes well. Mm -hmm. um, usually there's always something like in this case, we almost kick the audience because the, where they put the audience were really close. We're in the middle of everything. So mm -hmm. you just have to make those adjustments. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and that's just one example of like a corporate gig in Vegas, which was a pretty big industry before. Well, that, yeah. I think, I think a lot of people don't realize that that is a huge industry in Vegas, like at the hotels and, and, yeah. and stuff is that like, there are conventions like all the time. Like it could be doctors, it could be nurses, it could be lawyers, it could be, you know, whatever. Pick and the profession and they do yeah. things. <laughs> sometimes it's random stuff. Like one of, I had one gig that I found on Craigslist mm -hmm. randomly. Like th this dude, it was a smaller room. He was giving some presentation and he wanted someone to like give him the invitation, something fancy. Like I want you to come in, do a couple flips, like mm -hmm. uh, whatever, like a Zumanity performer and then give me this envelope. I'm like, okay. So you did it? Yeah. yeah <laughs> it, it, it was easy. It was like, like I had to, um, I had to get into a specific place. I was waiting outside and then mm -hmm. he had like his friend let me in cause the room was locked, like at a very specific time. And I was just like, whatever. <laughs> uh -huh. you know, I like, There's some weird gigs. There's some weird gigs. Um, yeah. Sometimes. That's to be expected though. It's Vegas. It, it, you know, there, right. there are definitely a lot of weird gigs in Vegas. Yeah. I would have been so scared. Like, Sorry, we had some events where you know a company would like rent out a whole nightclub for a, mm -hmm. for a whole night. I don't even know how much that costs to rent out the whole club and mm -hmm. then hire like a whole night of entertainment. So mm -hmm. sometimes it would be like just, you know, one act mm -hmm. in a specific conference and sometimes like it's a whole night of entertainment where they're hiring 10 different acts. Wow. And so yeah, it's sometimes we we had a full like we did a New Year's gig at the the Mandalay Bay where they do concerts, right? So mm -hmm. they rented out that whole like stadium. It was an indoor stadium. So the, the, the New Year's events, that's a big industry as well. That's like all of the high rollers in the hotel. So all of yeah. the whales. So it's mm -hmm. like super, super fancy event. Wow. That is so interesting. So that's how you would kind of like balance between the traveling and teaching. And then the performing would be kind of like doing some of these like Vegas gigs. And then the rest of the time would be spent traveling and, and teaching. Like that was kind of the balance of your business. Yep. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. Yeah. More and or less. so I saw then that you, 
you wrote that like your acrobatics and your hand balancing and all the other the skills that you've you've put together to to be the the teacher and the performer that you are are skills that you developed as an adult like i'm curious kind of like what your life looked like before that and also where did you go and who did you start studying from to 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 develop some of the things that you're doing um what did my life look like before that pretty boring i don't know uh, it, kinda, <laughs> it, it took me a while to find like my identity and the physical stuff helped with that because i wasn't cool and you know in high school especially i didn't know who i was nobody knows who they are yeah but i i didn't know i wasn't definitely wasn't a cool kid mm-hmm. i was like kind of a nerd but i kind of played sports i don't know i don't know what i did uh-huh. definitely a lot of awkwardness still uh-huh. awkward but but i i'm aware of that awkwardness mm-hmm. so i'm okay with it now because it's not something that I don't view it as a negative anymore. I'm aware with it and I'm perfectly okay being my awkward self where mm-hmm. before I would have been uh, more self-conscious about it in a negative way. So yeah, that I, th- I think like getting into that physical realm was a good way to kind of develop my identity. Like this idea that, okay, I don't know, my personality was kind of bland because I needed more experiences. So I'm going to do this thing and that's going to kind of turn me into who I am. And now I'm going beyond that where it's like, you don't want, you want to have an identity that goes beyond what you do, but you can use what you do to start creating your identity because it's all about experiences that give you a perspective so that when something happens and you respond to it, it's your own response, Mm -hmm. right? There's no right or wrong. It's that, the response that you have based on an event or what something or what somebody says, it's not some shit that you heard somebody else say. It's mm-hmm. something that you, you improvise on the spot based on your own experiences. And, and I, I know I, that's like, that's something that I really, yeah. I, I, I see a lot of everywhere that it's always kind of just like referring back to like something that's been said to them. And, and yeah. granted, like there's no original ideas. I want to yeah. like, everybody is coming from a place of things that have been thought. And said there before. are original perspectives is what exactly. it comes down to. Exactly. And that's what experience. I didn't have. I, mm-hmm. I know that like, I was, I mean, I was also afraid of saying that I didn't know something. Right. And now I'm, I'm good with that. Mm-hmm. I love not knowing something, but yeah, I, I remember like, yeah, I, I think it was a pretty bland personality in that I was afraid to express myself because I was always pretty introverted. I spent a lot of time by myself. So I'm, I don't really tell people things. I don't, mm-hmm. and I, that, that's something that I've always, I've, I've never, <laughs> like, I'm not going to tell people things unless they pry the information out of me. And mm-hmm. even then, like, it's a rough interrogation. Yeah. You can ask my mm-hmm. family mm-hmm. about that. But, um, but I know that was a lot, like, my, my opinions weren't my opinions. They were me parroting something that I heard somebody else say that mm-hmm. I thought sounded good. So I, I think it's important where I was getting at. Oh, yeah. So so the, the idea is that I used like building this physical skill as kind of a way to create my identity. And then through that, I developed enough experiences that, that I don't need the physicality because the identity has been developed through that. So what was the the second part of the question? What so then I, like so that, that? So, yeah, so what did you yeah what did your life look like before that? And then I'm also curious, you know, you decide you're like oh I'm I'm really fascinated by things like acrobatics and hand balancing. Where did you go and what resources did you turn to to start learning these things? Um, a lot of research. So so I'm the type of person that. I'm not going to, if I want to know something, I'm not going to ask somebody. I'm going to do as much research as I can first. 
mm-hmm. so I can at least know something. So when I ask, I'm a little bit less, I'm still ignorant, mm-hmm. but, but less ignorant. Mm-hmm. I don't want to ask the, oh, you got any tips for me to do this? Yeah. Like, no, because that's what the internet's for. There's so many tips over there. You want the specificity if you're, so in the beginning, it was just research. I started out with uh, old school strongman books because that was the only information on handstands at the time. In college, I just tried to learn. I was self-taught most of the time. And I, if I could find somebody to learn from, I, I did my best, right? The, the guy I learned uh, Capoeira from initially was, um, he was a dancer who played Tekken and that's how he learned Capoeira. So uh-huh. I learned from that. Every time I would encounter, and it, it, it was a lot of my own training. Every time I, you know, somebody told me they were a gymnast, like, mm-hmm. oh shit, you gotta, I got real excited. Like, oh, you gotta tell me everything. So mm-hmm. I would try to get as much information as I could when I found out that somebody did something that I was interested in. Um, at a certain point, I developed a bit of arrogance as well, because I, I thought that I had achieved some level because I had done it mainly by myself. And I realized later on, especially after moving to Vegas, the level I had achieved was not any kind of level at all. It was um, a decent mediocrity. Uh, so it, it kind of closed my mind off to that. But it, I did a lot of experimentation. I did a lot of internet research. And then I did a lot of uh, any time for a while, anytime I met somebody who could do what I wanted to do, I was probably real annoying. I would try to ask as many questions as I could because I wanted that perspective. And again, then there was a moment where I was closed off to the stuff I, I, did, I didn't think was useful. And now I'm kind of the opposite. Now it's like anything that I don't know, even if it's something I don't think is useful, it's still interesting because you get a perspective. What, of- are, the thi- what are the things that like around that time, that arrogance, what are the things that you thought weren't useful? I'm curious. So um, I'm going to give a, a very specific example. So I, in college, I did the cheerleading thing for the last, my last two years of college. So I got recruited on the green because I could do some flips. I thought I was real good at flips. I was kind of semi-mediocre. But because the people that I was training with didn't know the difference, they'd be like, yeah, bro, you're doing great. Um, so first off, it was being closed off to getting advice, mm-hmm. like from people who actually did know more than me. And then the second part, so one example, and I was starting to do, you know, more calisthenics and rings and body weight strength. So we had a weightlifting coach and we had a weightlifting routine as part of being a college cheerleader. And that first year, I didn't do any of the weight. I went to the weight room when I was supposed to, because that was part of the deal, but I didn't do the weightlifting routine. I just like fucked around doing my own thing. Cause I thought, well, I don't need to lift weights because I can already do a muscle up on rings and I don't need to do this. Cause I thought, okay, I can already do something. Why am I gonna subject myself to being a beginner in this thing? And, and at that point I was still, again, just maybe I watched too many Bruce Lee videos and he lifted weights too. But a lot of people say like, oh, Bruce Lee, he got his physique from doing wind shun and whatever. Mm-hmm. And the reality is that Bruce Lee did all kinds of different things including lifting heavy weights. But I thought that I didn't need the weight lifting so I just stuck to doing the things that I could already do that I already developed myself in. Mm-hmm. And the second year, I actually started doing the weights and I, I found that I enjoyed it. And it's like, well, why didn't I just do this last year? Mm-hmm. Why didn't I, I just I subject myself to being a beginner and I'm learning something new mm-hmm. because it, it's, it's all useful in its own right. Mm-hmm. So it's, and it, it's something I see I feel it sometimes. I try to catch myself when I get into that mindset. 
it's like when you're already at a high achieved a high level of something or what you perceive as a high level, it's um it's difficult to go back to being a beginner again. Mm-hmm. You see this all the time, like what happens in it, you know, sometimes you go to an audition for something and you see people who are dancers or gymnasts, you know, that they work as they're doing splits. Mm-hmm. They're showing off their splits. They're not really warming up. They're showing like, hey, I can do something. So if right. I fuck off this audition, look, I can, right. it's, it's like asserting the presence of, hey, I can do this. Mm-hmm. And it, it's, it, yeah, it's a bit of ego going on there. And it, it's, it's a difficult thing to say, okay, I've achieved, I've already climbed this mountain. I don't mm-hmm. want to go to the base of another mountain because I've already been to the top of another one. Well, well because, com- because, 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 because competence feels so good, yeah. you know, that's the problem. And I read this book and I've mentioned it a couple of times in the past, but like this idea of like, like a cultural addiction to competence, right? Like people are in, in our society specifically are like made to feel like we're supposed to be competent and we should always be doing the thing that we're competent at. And as opposed to being like, no, 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 be a beginner, fail, learn. And the more situations we put ourselves into be learning, the more primed we are to continue learning. Like learning is our magic. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And you have to appreciate that. And it, it took me many years and I still have to kind of slap myself sometimes to get out of that mindset. Like, hey, I'm bad at this. That's a great thing because mm-hmm. that means now I have more to learn. Like I'm at the base of the mountain. That means when I climb, my legs and lungs are going to get even stronger. At the yeah. top of the mountain, was that Dune quote? From the top of the mountain, you can't see the mountain. Yeah, exactly. I love that. So then most of your your studying and research was done solo, which I find really interesting because I've talked about this where I think that there's something really interesting to like people going to workshops and getting information, then having some ownness where they have to take that information and go and be with it on their own. That's my preference. Mm -hmm. I started like in Vegas, I started taking some regular classes as well, Mm -hmm. but, but I I like the, um, I like the idea of homework and research and spending, yeah, just spending time with it. Like, Mm -hmm. and that's, that's my preference as well. When I teach is I give somebody a concept play with this concept, come back when you've developed it, and then we can embellish on that. We can start to add to that concept because mm-hmm. then even, even though you're learning with somebody, you're learning under somebody's tutelage, you're learning through your own process and your own mistakes. And that's mm-hmm. really important as a teacher because I think some of the, I don't want to say the worst teachers, but some of the more rigid teachers are the ones that learned from one coach, this is the way. So you don't question the way this is how I learned because my coach taught me, this is how you're going to learn because this is the way to learn because the, and a lot of very high level performers learn that way. So there's nothing wrong with it. Ultimately through that self-exploration, you won't get to as high of a level compared to supervision from a coach. You're not going to hit as high of a level, but you're going to hit a deeper perspective. And as like, as a teacher, for example, perspective is important this idea that you have a reason for doing what you do based on your experiences and observations. And that's why, and and you're, and you're speaking a little bit more to like generalist versus specialist then as well. Right. Like if we're like, Oh, we're trying to like win the Olympics. It's a very different thing than, as you say, like 
being a generalist, somebody like with perspective, with problem solving selves and their own personal creativity in, in multitudes of like scenarios. Absolutely. Like it's that creativity to solve problems. That's really important that that corresponds to life. But at the same time, again, if you're trying, like mm-hmm. if your goal is to be an Olympic gymnast, you, sh- you should not be exploring on your own until you've developed a very specific, cause you're going to make mistakes. And, and in the basics, you're going to build bad habits that once you've built them up, you can't undo them in the time that it would take you to become an Olympic level gymnast. So that's like a very specific thing. If there's a level that you want to achieve, it's very difficult to do that. If you didn't start as a kid, it's very difficult to do that. If you didn't have good coaching and supervision from the beginning, because you're going to make mistakes, you're going to make bad habits. Mm -hmm. If you understand how to learn from those bad habits, it builds you as a person, but as as an athlete, not that you don't get built as a person from being a high level athlete, but mm-hmm. a lot of um, athletes are taught to be soldiers where the coach makes the decisions, the coach fixes everything, they build those good habits. And then yeah. what ends up happening sometimes is you have these amazing athletes who don't even know how they do something, they just do it, mm-hmm. which is a very high level of performance. Mm-hmm. Like that, that's kind of the highest level of mindfulness to some degree mm-hmm. is mindlessness. But how do you how do you explain that to somebody else? Right. The other part. So, 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 then, do you see that sometimes, like even now, like in like movement, that there are people who aren't aren't seeking enough perspective and are just willing to just, you know, be with one person and and accept that as like the be all and end all, and it, it potentially like weakens their 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 exploration, even if it's even if it's even if it's you know, um, like a rich teacher. Like it's can still, do you feel like it's, you see that it's still limiting? I think every teacher offers their own perspective. There's mm-hmm. better, I mean, there's, there's teachers who have deeper perspectives, mm-hmm. but it, it's all about the goals and intent. Cause why do people take the class? Sometimes it's just to say they trained with this teacher and there's nothing wrong with that. And as long as they're honest with themselves, sometimes they care more about the goals they care than the, than the process. Mm-hmm. And if the teacher can help get them to their goals as fast as possible, and they don't have to do as much thinking or exploration, and that's mm-hmm. what they want to do, and they're honest with themselves, there's nothing wrong with that either. I think it's important to understand why you're doing something and what your reasoning is, mm-hmm. and not lying to yourself. And then when you understand that, then everything's the right answer, because there's nothing wrong with, I want to train with this teacher so I can write that in my resume. And that's right. it. And, and at the yeah. As and long as you know it, as long as you know it, as long as you know, or like, I'm, I'm want to take this workshop because I think I'm good and I want validation for how good I am. Mm-hmm. That's not the best reason to take a class, but if you're honest with yourself, that's a lot better than, than saying, Oh, I just want to soak up knowledge and learn as much as I can. And then as soon as you get a critique, you're like, well, what the fuck? I thought I was good. Right. That's the, the first one where you're there for validation and you know it, that's more honest. Mm-hmm. So that to some degree, that's a better approach than lying to yourself. Yeah. So it, it's all about what, yeah, what do you want to do? What do you want to get out of it? I like the idea of exploration, but mm-hmm. I understand that also it's going to take longer to learn something. But I like this idea of I don't want to give people answers. I want to give people a direction to find their own answer, right? If you ask the right, if you give people an answer rather than teaching them to ask better questions, mm-hmm. They end up, it, it's, and, and again, it depends because some, some teacher teaching protocols, some programs aren't made to be finished. 
It's a business thing. They're made to keep people in the system, just like like medicine. I don't want to get too deep into this, but a lot of the Western medicine, it's not made to to make people healthy. Right. It's made to cure to to heal people enough so they get sick again and come back. Mm-hmm. But the if you actually teach someone to be healthy, what's going to happen? They're not going to have to go to the doctor very often, and then mm-hmm. the medical community is not going to make money. So mm-hmm. some teaching protocols as well are kind of built to to not build independence of the students, but to keep them in the system, and they're not made to be f- uh, finished. And my mm-hmm. idea as a teacher, a little bit more purist, is like a good teacher eventually makes themselves obsolete. Like the good teachers that I've had, mm-hmm. I can. I know them well enough that I can anticipate what they're going to say. So even after I stop training with them, they're still there because I can think, okay, this is the lesson that I learned and this is how I approach it. So it's like a permanent, it permanently changes your viewpoint on what you're doing. I think that's what good teaching is. Is it permanently changes your perspective? It makes me think, uh, do you ever watch Chef's Table? You ever seen no. it? There's a there's a good, ep- I haven't watched all of them, but there was this one episode where it's like this chef down in like Patagonia, right? And he's like very well known for like cooking in the ground and he brings on like a certain number of apprentices, but he always tells them they have to leave at a certain point. He's like, you, now we're done. It's over yeah. and you and you have to leave now. Like I'm done with you. You don't like, want to build do dependence your either because that's the issue too with um, a lot of people just want and that's how a lot of programs are made. And I kind of, I've always been very careful to stay away from that. Where you know, like, this is the program. You don't even have to think. You just have to do what we tell you to do and you're going to see results. Mm-hmm. I guess that it's better than nothing. It's, it's if you're going to spend time and you don't know what to do, Okay, but eventually it's like you haven't developed independent thought. Right, right. You, you, someone else has been thinking for you, and they're not you. So mm-hmm. I don't know. I feel, I feel it a lot. I see a lot of like uh, regurgitating as opposed to being like, oh well, I've developed my understanding of how I learn, how I think, what my creativity looks like through, you know, conversation through exploration with different people. I do see a lot of like well, this person said this, so I repeat what they say over and over. Yeah. Yeah. And this other idea, I like this analogy. It's like you walk on a trail, whatever. Mm -hmm. And if you're always following somebody, you don't really learn how to navigate the trail. You learn how to follow who is ever in front of you. What happens when you're on that trail by yourself? Did you notice the signs? What happens if you get lost? Do you know how to get back? You Mm -hmm. don't learn that if you only follow. The yeah. first couple times, it's probably good to follow because yeah. if you've never been on that trail, yeah, you're going to get lost and you, you may not know where you are. So it's good to have some direction. But if you get used to only well, it's like coming back to that, that brain, right? The brain wants to be efficient. So it wants to only do what it can already do because you build these pathways and it yeah. takes a lot more effort to explore. This is an analogy I've used a while as well before reading any kind of brain books is it's like. It, it, you have this, you have a lot of snow in your backyard or wherever, and you, you walk and then you create a path. Mm-hmm. And then the next time you walk, it's easier to go on the path you've already gone. And yeah. eventually you make a path and that's the easiest thing to do because the path is simple, but that yeah. might, may, may not be the best path. Yeah. But it's the path that you have available and you're more likely to walk on that path than put effort into exploring a new path. And that's kind of what happens if you if you rigidly follow a program too much, somebody else's program, instead of starting to understand how to teach yourself. Like mm-hmm. as for a beginner, um, I, I think it's it's good to have direction. 
So as a beginner, you're going to get lost because you don't know where to go at all. So mm-hmm. do something, follow something. Right. But as you get more advanced, if you keep following, then you only get good at following. Mm. That, that, that analogy that you said reminds me of um, Michael Pollan's book, The uh, How to Change Your Mind. Uh, the book on psychedelics, he he uses a similar analogy, but he gets to the point of what you said with like creating like the deep grooves. But then he says, now imagine that your brain is a snow globe and you take psychedelics and now it gets shaken up and has the potential to like resettle completely. Um, so I really like your analogy though, that that's what, exactly what will happen is eventually people just start staying. If the snow is deep, they like really enjoy just like walking in someone else's tracks. I, I, I like that. Yeah. Um, so I, I get the impression then that like at your workshops, and I haven't gotten to take any, but I know that some people who have, and they have the best things to say. Um, and I know that it kind of varies, but it's like you, 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 I talked to somebody who got to work with you on press hand standing and there's hand balancing and uh, the multitude of things that you do. But as I speak to you now, I get the impression, and this is how I felt with a lot of the people who I've spoken to, who have taught a lot and I, and who I've felt like are really good teachers that the material or the content of the workshop isn't really the important piece, that the content is just a vehicle for the, the bigger thing that's, yep. that's being taught. Yep. And that's oftentimes some level of like creativity, problem solving, independence, um, resilience, um, some of those things. And the, and the content is just kind of like, well, here's my way of getting to that other stuff. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. I think I've even used uh, very similar words to that to mm-hmm. describe, but it's like handstands are cool, but it's just a party trick. It's not going to make you a better human being able to do a handstand. Hold on. Can, can, not- can, you say, can you say that one more time? Because I think that that is a really beautiful thing to say, because I think people often get caught up that it's just uh-huh. the party. Did I say that you're not going to be a better human from learning the handstand? Yeah, I do like you're that. You're not, but you will. So it's like the handstand is the car. It's the wagon, but it's not the road. The mm-hmm. wagon can take you along that road. So it's like you're not better than anybody else because you can do a handstand and they can't. It's really important not to go through that elitism. However, the path that you took to get a handstand, you learned a lot about yourself. It teaches you, again, it teaches you not just to do a fancy trick, but it teaches you long-term perseverance mm-hmm. and, and training and consistency and focus and all this kind of stuff. So you're not a better person because you can do a handstand, right. but you're a better person because you learned how to do it. So it's like you can get this elitism of, okay, I can do a handstand and they can't, yeah. but they can probably do something that I can't hopefully that they've put years into learning and, and, and that's something. And, and, so, yeah, and, and it's exactly and, and, that. And it's just like what you were saying about being at the top of the mountain. It's really not about the peak. It's like someone, getting, everyone's it's get, climbing it, their own mountains. It's, it's about going up the mountain. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And everybody has their own. And the, the, yeah, it's that idea. Maybe handstand is, it's a cool trick, but other people can do cool shit that I can't do. That's like subtlety. Mm-hmm. Right. It's not all about being physical. It's it's about developing some kind of skill set to a point that you do it well. And handstand is just a cool thing to do. The reason I like handstands and acrobatics uh, in specific, because I, I do like the physicality of it, but it, it's it has handstand specifically has kind of three main factors. You have the physical, you have the technical and the psychological. And it's a combination of those three. Like, for example, you're playing a musical instrument. 
that's a very hard thing to do. That takes years to develop, years of practice, years of basics, just like handstands. But you're not going to be scared. Maybe when you're performing in front of a thousand people, there's going to be some psychology. But for the most part, you're not going to be scared to pick up the instrument and try to make a noise. But a lot of people are scared to go upside down. So, and then likewise, like you, you don't have to be strong. You don't have to necessarily build up your physicality to play an instrument. Yeah, just to, to some degree, but not at the same level of doing like acrobatic skill set. So that's what's really cool about handstands and acrobatics is you have, there's a very specific precise technique that you have to learn because it's not intuitive. So you have to overcome that. You have to overcome your bad habits. There is a physicality. So you do have to actually build up your body to be able to handle doing those skills. And then there's the psychology. So you have to understand your perspective. You have to, to get comfortable in a place that you're uncomfortable, which again, that's not about handstands. That's transcends life mm -hmm. is you get to a place where you're uncomfortable. What do you do to build comfort there? Because you can't do more if you're uncomfortable. If you're in a handstand and you're always afraid of falling over, you're not going to learn to balance. You're not going to learn to hold it because you're going to be in this fear stage the whole time so it's about it's about overcoming fear it's about physically getting stronger it's about learning a technique and doing all of those things at once and at the end of it if you can do a handstand that's cool and if you can't it doesn't matter because it's about what you learned about yourself that you can apply to other areas of your life that is really beautiful i feel like i've i've thought this and said this in a lot of different ways i often use the the Mount Everest analogy of like, you know, you can get carried to the top of Everest by Sherpas, yep. right? But if you actually go and learn how to climb, learn, go through the 10 year process of learning what it means to climb Everest, it doesn't actually matter if you get to the top. Of course, that's amazing. But everything you learned along the way is the, that's the meat and potatoes. The peak is just like a candy bar. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And it's the years and, and that's something it's, a, it's something a lot of people don't understand, especially with the, the quick, quick fix culture. Mm -hmm. It's like anything that's worth doing, if you, you're going to have to measure in a period of years. Mm -hmm. If you learn it fast, you're going to forget it fast. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and anybody that can do something as well as you would, you would like to do it, they also spent years. Mm -hmm. Maybe right. the, the video of them doing it is a compilation of 30 seconds, but then that 30 seconds is probably 10 years of worth of work and sacrifice. Right. Well, and, it's, and, and, and that's the unfortunate piece of like the, the, the quick fix or like the instant gratification models of our life. Like, you know, like the Instagrams and the Facebooks and stuff, the unfortunate reality, even though it's great, you know, and it gives certain validation is that like the, the, the candy, the peaks are the things that get a lot of likes. Yeah. The things that got to that point are not as likable on, yeah. on Instagram, but are, are probably the richer pieces. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So what, you know, physically and in terms of like your movement practice, cause I know you were talking about being a beginner with um, the voiceover work and the acting and everything. What are some, where are some places you go now or have gone more recently in terms of your physical practice or your movement practice that makes you feel like a beginner that, that puts you in a place where you're like, wow, this is, this is a slightly new world for me. Um, the, so like acting was actually really interesting because the, the class that I took is very specific to film acting, mm -hmm. which 
So one thing that took me months to, to understand was how to plant, how to be still. Because it's this idea that it, like, let's say the camera is on a close up. Mm. This isn't a good, this is just my yeah. own camera. But if you move, you look crazy. But I like to move a lot. I'm someone who likes to move. Like even when I talk, I feel better if I move and I talk. Mm -hmm. And this is a common thing that people have as well as they shift back and forth. So this mm -hmm. is something that took me probably three, four months of class to, to understand is like, I'm going to plant. And then the eyes as well, because I'm someone like, I like to look around a lot because mm -hmm. I like to know. So those are two things, two like very technical, but also a little bit physical parts of film acting that that I, I didn't realize I was doing them. Mm -hmm. I, the first class, I remember I got nervous. Like I don't get nervous teaching a seminar or, you know, teaching in front of whatever hundreds of people, like, I don't care. Cause I know. And we had to do an exercise where you had to just stand still pick an eye line, and then talk about something that you're an expert in just improv. You could make that up. And I was like, I'm nervous. And this mm -hmm. is something I do for a living. And for whatever reason in this class of 15 strangers, this is difficult right. because why is it difficult? I don't know. So, th so that was one thing like in terms of the physicality of it mm -hmm. is, was being able to plant. Hey, being able I to plant and being able to look at one point and then finding that focus and then whatever emotion you have, like whatever you're trying to do, you have to do within that small frame and you have to be aware of your points. You have to be aware. It's, a, it's really interesting. I didn't realize, you know, how technical it was to work in front of the camera. And again, that idea of stillness, if it's, if it's a super close up and you got a, um, like a, a very, you know, they're working on a 70 millimeter lens or something or a telephoto lens where you get a huge depth of field or a very shallow depth of field. Sometimes if you move like this, you're already out of focus. Mm. So that's a very technical thing and it's not easy to do. It's a lot it's a lot harder than it sounds. And for me, that was super difficult. I, re I totally relate. It was, I think it was like really at the beginning of the pandemic, I started work working a lot on like a standing practice. Yeah. And it's so funny. People get so like, you know, this is ridiculous. You're just standing for 10, 20 minutes, an hour, whatever it is. But I'm like, there's something about learning how to like be still and organize over my feet in a static position that you would think would be among the easiest things that we do because we're on our feet all day, but it is extremely challenging from a multitude of like different perspectives. But yeah. um, I think that that's a really interesting one to be dealing with. And it was a huge light bulb too. Like once I knew enough about it that I could catch myself mm -hmm. that like, again, it's one of those things that completely changed my perspective. And then you watch, like now you watch movies and you realize like the movement comes from the camera, the, like they're standing still and they have to. And then I catch myself like, oh shit, I move too much. And <laughs> a lot of these, a lot of these, yeah, small details and standing still is hard. Mm -hmm. I, it was a lot harder for me, like standing still and looking at one point mm -hmm. while having another task to do. Sound, it sounds easy. Mm -hmm. It's really not. I talked to, um, Yosef Frusek, you know, from Fighting Monkey. Yep. Uh, I had him on the podcast and we chatted a little bit and he talked a little bit about standing and listening to his perspective about it and and talking a little about a little bit about you know taking it back into like this idea of like being a hunter or being hunted and like these types of things like that would have played a role in those in those times in our life really gave me a, a and like an aha moment about these things. And then watching like some of these documentaries where where people are hunting and you see like this like rich stillness that comes over them while like their senses are, are, are almost like turned up. 
yeah. right? And it's something we don't have to do as much now because things are really like handed to us, like technology and, and uh, you know, automation and all these things have made life so easy that like, we don't need, we don't need to be still anymore in the same way. Whereas before it's like, you would have to be still for like, to take in like the richness of what's going on around you so that you could address the world properly. It's really interesting. Like even from being still, like, I don't know. So, so sometimes I do it like part of my morning routine where I, it's basically similar. I do a standing practice with the eyes closed and I just focus on the auditory realm. Like mm -hmm. how much information can I learn about the world without being able to see it? Mm -hmm. But, and then taking that further, if I really feel like it, I got these um, earmuffs for shooting, for shooting guns, uh -huh. but it's like you put them on and then you realize how much noise your own body makes. Mm. And like even your own breathing, like it comes back into, I haven't gone that far in my shooting, but from what I understand, like a high level sniper or somebody who's shooting a bow at like a couple hundred meters, like they have to time not only holding their breath, but in between heartbeats. Mm. And like even even through the still, the, the most still of stillness, mm -hmm. like your body's still making a lot of noise. And mm -hmm. you don't realize until you put these earmuffs on sometimes how much noise your own breathing makes. And if you really like have to listen to something, you can't breathe. Mm -hmm. You don't want to breathe. And it's, yeah, yeah like even, even how much movement there is in what we perceive as basic stillness. Mm-hmm. Right. Like no, nothing ever completely stops moving. Yeah. Yeah. Have you done any breath work or anything or spent any time on breath work? I play around with it. I took a Wim Hof workshop a couple of years ago. I, I do some breathing exercises. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Pretty interesting. Mm -hmm. Pretty yeah, interesting. I've... I can feel if I do it right and, and I hold the breath long enough in the, in the Wim Hof or whatever those long breath holds. I can, I can get a better sense of where the tension is in my body and I can like jaw is where I hold most of it. And I can feel that very acutely, like towards the end of a long breath hold, which I feel is really interesting. So I went to, I bring it up because I went to theater school yep. and, you know, we studied so many things and it's like, you're 18 years old. So you just can't even appreciate it properly at the time. Like we had to take Tai Chi classes and like vaudeville classes and they were so good. But at the time you're just so unprepared for that kind of information. Um, but after reading a lot more about breath and, and taking some classes on breath and everything, I'm, I think to myself that it's a piece that's, that's left out or not given enough attention in the performance realm. And I think maybe if I had stayed longer in theater school, it would have gotten there. And I think some of those things start to happen naturally when I think, when I imagine people delivering like Shakespearean monologues and stuff. But I think it's this like really integral piece that, as you were talking about with being able to stand on your feet and be still, I think that the breath is like this, this important, often overseen aspect of, of a lot of these things. Really interesting. Like one of the mistakes, like one of the, the notes that I got from my voiceover teacher is it's common that before you read your lines, like you take a big breath. But the reality is that when you talk naturally, you only take as much of a breath as you need. So it, it's like this idea of not having to prepare because you're already prepared, but it's something really like, again, one of those details I've never even thought about, like, well, shit, you always take a breath to prepare, but when you're talking, you take only as much as you need and then you mm -hmm. don't have extra and you don't have to let it out. But then when you're reading a script, you're more likely to take an extra. 
Mm-hmm. And, and that was really interesting. And I guess same thing with some of like the film acting too, because a lot of the work we did was very opposite to theater, where it's like, in theater, you want to project. And it's kind of the, the opposite because we're not talking to an audience. We're talking to each other. Mm-hmm. So you, there's, you actually don't want to project. But sometimes it's hard. A- another the kind of level of stillness, like you're acting, but you're talking to someone else. And even though people are watching you, you're actually just trying to talk to somebody else. And it, it's that level. And that's one of those things as well. It's like, how much control when you talk do you have over your breath? that you you don't even know what you're going to say, but you only take as much breath as you need. Mm, that's interesting. Have you, have what you is read, that calibration? Right, right. How do, like, that's like a, some interesting thing that becomes intuitive through the learning of language and then ultimately like when we get to improvising with language. Yeah. What, have you read the book um, Breath by James Nestor? It's like pretty popular right now. I think it came I've out. I've read like- very few nonfiction books. I usually stick to, <laughs> I stick okay. to, to deeper stories. Oh, if, okay. if it's stuff that can happen in real life, I usually try to figure that out myself. Oh, okay. I'm reading a book on it. Well, I strongly I suggest it. It's, it's a pretty yeah. straightforward one. And I think that he, t- he talks a little bit about like um, Tumo, which is what Wim Hof um, kind of turned into his thing and just also like basic breath things. But I, I do think about like being, when I was reading it, I thought a lot about being in theater school and being like, Oh, like the, the real subtle pieces, like the important, like um, high value things, as opposed to like what he calls like breath plus, I was like, I wish there had been some more focus on this because it's the important things as like, as simple as like nose breathing versus mouth breathing, which I thought was really valuable. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's deep, and it's something we take for granted because we already know how to do it. Right. Well, it, it keeps happening. But I I read, you know, like the Yoga Sutras a while back, and they were talking about how if you control your breath, your mind is in control. But also, if your mind is in control, your breath is in control. Like they go together. Um, so I think that there's uh, there's there's value there because I think people get really caught up you know, with the, the, the big physical things. And as I said, the, the most important pieces aren't Instagrammable, unfortunately. Um, and you can, there's no way to Instagram, like, you know, mind and breath and control, but that is like the root of so much, um, important shit. And it, and, and then you could probably talk more about like when those things are, are more managed, how things like the big moves or the, the, the acrobatics or the hand balancing, becomes more manageable as well. It's interesting that I, I use, I did, so breathing in a handstand, like it's something that I, I've already been doing. So I never had to think about it until I started teaching adults more. And one of the progressions that I use is actually talking, just like we said, like, because when you talk, mm-hmm. you're naturally controlling your breath and it's subconscious. It's something that you already calibrate. So that's like one of the recommendations that I give to people. It's not just about breathing in a handstand because you're, you're in a solid position. If you're panicked, if you're afraid, you're going to breathe differently. If you're uncomfortable, you're going to breathe differently. If you don't breathe or if you don't circulate your breathing, you're going to feel pressure in your head. I learned that when I had some stitches in my face <laughs> and I came back to doing handstands is how quickly that pressure builds up if the breathing doesn't circulate. Mm-hmm. But I love using talking as an example. Like if you can talk in a handstand, that's a perfect way to learn how to breathe because you're already calibrating your breath and you're calibrating it in a way that you don't have to consciously think about it. So do you start that, that causes do you, do you, another? Do you start that early on with people? Like when they're like in, in like wall facing positions and stuff, do you say like tell stories or something? 
Yeah. Even better if you have to think, because the, the whole point, this is just for, it's not only for handstand. The idea is you want to build layers and you want to build layers to the point that you don't have to consciously focus on them because the reality is you can, you can consciously focus on one thing. If you're really good, you can do two things, but you're not really doing two things. You're switching back and forth. Three things, nah, probably not. So, mm -hmm. so let's say you can consciously focus on one thing. So if you have to consciously focus on holding yourself up in your handstand, it's going to be very difficult to add another layer of complexity like balance, which builds on top of it. So what happens when people are in their handstand? They're thinking about how much it sucks. Maybe they're afraid of falling and their mind is going there. Maybe their body is tensing up too much. So the, the point is to get this basic position to be one that you can hold without being there as part of the subconscious realm that you don't have to make uh, any active uh, aware that you don't have to put your active awareness energy on. Mm -hmm. So talking is a way to kind of circumvent that. So if I'm thinking about another task, mm -hmm. the body is going to switch a lot faster to subconscious mode. So if I'm just holding a handstand and thinking about how much it sucks to hold a handstand, I'm not going to be as comfortable as if I'm holding a handstand talking to someone about i like to use the category game like mm -hmm. i throw a random category and you just name as many items as you can in that category out uh -huh. loud so i'm not thinking about being in a handstand i'm thinking about these items in the category i'm thinking about using my voice in a way where it doesn't sound like i'm working hard mm -hmm. and and the handstand is something that happens by itself because that's already the tertiary part of the awareness that already has to be subconscious and in this way you're developing that you're developing a higher level of that handstand is first you learn it consciously then you learn how to do it subconsciously because when you can do it subconsciously now you can add more right it's I like you're you're, you're 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 like uh distracting the reflective mind so that yep. the automatic mind is doing the handstand and and then the reflective mind can start to go somewhere else yep and then and then as you do that do you then keep that versions of that game going as you build in like more complex layers of the handstand as well. Yes, but not when they're learning something new. So when you're learning something new, you do want to consciously do it because your body is probably not going to do it because the technique is probably counterintuitive. Mm -hmm. So it's like when something is completely new, you do want to consciously be there. Once mm -hmm. that's developed to a, at least a mediocre degree, then you can start to play with those games. So that's like the, the first level of handstands would be just that holding position, just the physicality of it. Then when that's developed, then you start to think about balance, mm -hmm. mainly with the hands. So when you're learning to balance, you should be very focused on that because it's a new thing. So you have to develop that coordination. Once mm -hmm. it's there to a degree, then you can start to, again, move that into the subconscious by starting to add those games again then you can add another level of complexity so in the handstands it might be leg so then you can hold it static so mm -hmm. then you can hold it static with a balance without having to think about the balance mm -hmm. then you add something more complex like leg movement so in the beginning you start you focus on that leg movement because it's mm -hmm. taking extra awareness then once you have it then you can do the leg movement at the same time that you're thinking about something else so what you've done now is built four layers Mm -hmm. of stuff that you don't have to consciously calculate because you can't make conscious calculations very fast. Mm -hmm. Subconscious calculations, there's a lot of math going on that's super complex. Yeah. So it's like this idea that you've built now the handstand position, the handstand balance and moving yourself in a handstand by going from a conscious awareness to a subconscious awareness. And you can keep that game going for 
I think I think that that's brilliant. I've uh, I did something like that at a workshop once where we were. It was it was a different. It wasn't hands on. It was something else. But the idea was that like your partner was asking you math questions as you were performing a task, and and I really loved that idea, especially after I got a little bit more exposure to like that idea of like the automatic mind and the reflective mind, and then like making a skill, something more intuitive and kind of just shifting it down the ladder so that you can start to add things on top of it. I think that that's a really interesting and, and creative approach. Yeah. And it goes with the idea of it's a weird thing. It looks better when you don't try. Mm-hmm. Right. And it works yeah. better when you don't try, but mm-hmm. how do you not try without trying? Right. So it, it kind of goes along with that as well as it's like, if it looks like you're trying hard, mm-hmm. it's probably not going to work as well. Yeah. I think uh, people who are working by themselves could even use the the task that you were given in your acting class to like, I forget what it was, like talk about something that you're you're an expert at or something or, or, yep. or something that it's like people who are practicing by themselves could get, get, you know, practice their handstand, for instance, and they could do that game that you mentioned that the acting teacher gave you to start telling about something that they are an expert at on there if they were by themselves doing it. Yeah. Any of those improv games are great. And it, like we did a lot of improv in the class too. And it's, it's really interesting. Like some people, when they struggle to remember lines, mm-hmm. it sounds like their, their delivery sounds so forced and mechanical, right? Because the, their awareness is going into, Oh, what's the line? What's the line? And then when you tell them to do the same thing, but improvise, like how much different, how much, natural it sounds when they basically said the same thing but it came from from that realm of improvisation it comes back to this idea of not trying too hard mm-hmm. when it's something that's been like talked about for thousands of years i i wrote i wrote a blog recently and i mentioned that that the term wu way i don't know if you've heard it um it's like a it was in a book on like tao but it's the idea of like conscious non-effort yep. effortless yep. right and it's like you know that that it's a the, this quality that we would like to embody, and it's what you're describing here, where it, like the we shouldn't be, it should be non-forced. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. Like I, I'm still working on it, but in my own journey in the acting class, like the a few months down the line of practice and conscious awareness, how much easier it became, and how much more natural it became. Like once, okay, I'm still, and I know what I'm doing, and that's something that I had to focus so hard on a few months back. And now I have this, it becomes natural. Mm-hmm. And then I can do the same thing, but without trying. And when mm-hmm. I don't try, then I can focus on more things. Mm-hmm. So is there, is, there, uh, is there much act or potential for acting work right now in Las Vegas? Or is this maybe preemptive for like what's coming when the world opens back up a little more? I don't know. It's hit or miss. The Vegas community. So LA is kind of going to shit. Mm-hmm. Um, LA is, it's probably done as far as filming goes. Cause the, I don't know what's happening with Newsom studios are closed down. They have to go through like two hours of COVID testing every day to be on set. Crazy shit. So mm-hmm. from what I understand, a lot of the filming is going to Atlanta and New Mexico. New Mexico is shut down right now mm-hmm. as well. Vegas they, what they need to do that they didn't is um, give one of those tax incentives because it's mm-hmm. a good place to film and it's not a bad place to like build a studio, but they haven't done that because a lot of these other states, mm-hmm. there's like um, like these states that they film stuff in, there's some kind of tax rebate for the corporations. 
I remember, he, I, remember, I remember hearing this at one point I had a girlfriend who, I mean, this was years ago now, but she was from Louisiana. And I remember her pointing out that they were filming a lot of things in Louisiana and said something about like these yeah. tax breaks. Cause I was like, why of like, why Shreveport, exactly. Louisiana, but it was something like that, that you're describing. So they need to do that in Nevada, which they haven't. The scene is growing. There's a lot of like amateur filmmakers kind of making the rounds right now. And I mean, I, I got my, my IMDb profile up. So I've been in now a feature film Mm -hmm. and then some other kind of like shorter film series. So it's growing. It's not there yet. Um, Probably Atlanta is the place to be now. If you really want to get into that. I don't know. I don't know what I'm doing yet, but it is something that I'm interested in. It's something it's one of those things that like if the opportunity comes, Mm -hmm. I would rather be ready for it. Like at least with a few months of training, is it enough? Who knows? But it's better than zero months of training trying to wing it. Yeah. So it's it's one of those. I'm interested in pursuing it. Um, I don't know if I want to move to Atlanta for now. In a few years, who knows? Um, if it grows in Vegas, that's great. But yeah, it's it's interesting. I don't regret learning the skill and continuing to to work on the skill. It'll it'll go a long way. I I mean I firmly believe that having been through like theater school and then like, you know, being a performer for 10 years, like I think that like those skills are like they're I can't even pinpoint the moments, you know what I mean, but I'm like they're they're high value. Yeah. And it was very interesting to me the difference of projecting to an audience versus projecting to a camera and how how difficult minimalism is. Again, yeah. compared to, to you know Cirque, where it's like you have to make the movements big because there might be whatever a thousand people, and there might be people in the who can barely see you in the back, yeah. and you have to still project to them. Compared to yeah, compared to a camera, where minimalism makes a lot more impact. So tell me, because um, I don't want to take up your whole day. I'm curious what your what your online classes look like, and 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 what 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 are what is available to people in, in that realm with you yeah so uh, yeah it's a good question um so every week mostly i'm doing an online class on various topics and i take suggestions on the topics too so that's i have them all posted on my website uh, i've tried to go a couple weeks in advance so that is it's a 90 minute class i usually go over it's it's with the live audience so people can watch the recording later because they get the recording. But if they're live, they can ask questions. They can get some feedback. And I keep the group small. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I do uh, put a cap on the group size. I do one-on-one online coaching as well. I do also have an online training group where every month we do a different topic. And I, I make like a huge, very in-depth tutorial. Like I have two and a half hours of uh, instructional footage this month. I always don't think it's going to be that long. And then once I film it, I'm like, shit, that's a lot of footage. What's it, What's so, an example of like a, a topic? So this month, it's random stuff. This month we're doing uh, breakfalls, rolls, and soft landings. Mm-hmm. Last month we did planche. So it's like a concept. An idea is I, I give perspectives of this is how you do it as a beginner. This is how you do it if you have a bit more skill. This is the concept to work on it. Mm-hmm. Every one of the concepts takes longer than a month to develop. The idea is that every month it's a different topic. And if you want to look back on old topics, you can work on that. So that's all That's all exclusive. I don't even know how much footage there is because this is the 14th month. So it's probably like 30 hours of instructional footage, 20 to 30 hours that, that only members of the group have seen. Wow. Um, 
have you ever thought about doing like a virtual workshop, like uh, maybe maybe like over a weekend or maybe three days, like a Friday, Saturday, Sunday, where it's like just, but it's just like two hours each day, like some sort of version of like a workshop? I don't know. I'm, I'm hesitant. Mm-hmm. It takes me a while to transition to those kind of things because I want to make sure I do it right. Mm-hmm. I don't know. If, I find it really tiring teaching on Zoom. Yeah. And, and so I don't know if energetically that that would, yeah, it's something to think about. I might. I'd think about it. Not yeah. right now. I only thought of it because I, I, you know, I've signed up for ones where I've taken it like that and I've seen other people do things like that. And just kind of being like, oh, well, rather than doing the full day workshop or full weekend workshop, it's kind of condensed. Um, but just knowing that that's what you were doing in the past, I was like, oh, well, hey, that maybe that's something that fits where you're at. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Awesome. So Instagram and and your website are the best places to find you? Yeah, Instagram, Facebook, website. I'm not really on any other platforms. <laughs> that I know of. <laughs> yeah, someone has like TikTok accounts for you or something somewhere. Yeah, I'm not <laughs> no TikTok for me. Um and when is the next class that you're doing? This Saturday. Uh the topic is I think upper body and spine mobility. Mm-hmm. And then the week after that, it's beginner handstands. And the week after that, it's um, ring skills. So muscle-ups, levers, meat hooks. So yeah, it's it's various topics. And eventually, I'm going to do probably like a members, some kind of members only thing where where I'll post all of the old workshops. So then, uh, I don't know, I'm I'm still formulating it right now. Mm -hmm. Some kind of membership where you'll get access to content and Mm -hmm. all of the old workshops will go on there. So when you're a member of that, you can view all of the the workshops. I'm not there yet, in another couple months or so. I I love that idea though. I think that that, that's where, that's the smart move. I think that's where a lot of people are going with these types of things. Well, I look forward, man, to when the world makes these things available. I, uh, you know, I still have family who are in, well, Northern Nevada, but family in Southern California. So there's definitely potential to like head through the Vegas area. So right. if you're still there, I will make the effort to move that direction when, when I can, because it would be cool to get to uh, connect and cross paths in person on the next one. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Awesome, man. Have a good day. Thank you so much. Yep. Cheers. Later. Take it easy.